In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Earlier this week, I was planning to do some cooking, and so I took out of the cabinet an old notebook in which I have tons of recipes and Xeroxed things that I've pulled from here and there. And to open that book was very much like opening a journal. It was to go back in time. As I noticed one recipe, I would quickly think of all the places that I had made the recipe and the people I had shared the food with. On and on it went, and then I saw a sheet that was for Madeleines, a little like Marcel Proust when he bit into a Madeleine. The Madeleine was a little like a hyperlink to all sorts of memories and places. Of course, Proust used the Madeleine to write a seven-volume novel. I simply turned the page and cooked something else. But food can do that, can't it? One bite, one smell, one sighting, and off we go. Maybe it's turkey and cranberry sauce, and it takes us to countless Thanksgiving tables with people we've known and loved, many of whom perhaps have moved on. Or perhaps this time of year it's a hot dog with chili, and suddenly we're at every July 4th and every birthday party and every Memorial Day weekend. Who knows what food that is for you. If I see cornbread and black-eyed peas and greens of some kind, I think it must be New Year's Day. And then we each have our own memory of a food, don't we? Something that's personal to us that takes us back to a particular place or with particular people or perhaps it was the recipe of a special person. You know that feeling. Suddenly you're not where you were. You're some other place. Food can do that as a reminder, as a memorial. Much of the Protestant tradition, especially John Calvin and to some extent Martin Luther, stressed this memorial of the Lord's Supper, of Holy Communion, of the Eucharist. Um, Some would say that what we do around the altar is only a memorial. It is only symbolic in its value. Of course, our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers uh, say something much more. They say it's, it's much more than a symbol. It's much more than memory. We, we remember, we re-sacrifice. And so the, the bread and wine become the, the real body and blood of Christ. As Anglicans, sitting between the two and among them, we say, yes, let's eat. That's slightly oversimplifying. But in our grand and great tradition, there is room for everyone and everyone's beliefs and opinions and deeply held desires for what the Holy Eucharist can mean. And in all honesty, it probably depends on the day and what is going on for us. Sometimes it is symbolic primarily. Others times we are right there in that upper room with the disciples. Other times we're swept up into some mystery where it is the body and the blood of Christ and somehow he is flowing in us and we're ready to flow for him into the world. Holy Communion is all of those things. Of course, the Holy Eucharist is a meal. At one level, it's simply bread and wine. 
sometimes very special bread made by volunteers or a bread guild, sometimes in the last minute bought from Sea Town. <laughs> it's bread and wine, and yet, and yet, with prayers, with the Holy Spirit, with faith, it becomes the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. And it can take us back, sure enough, to our first communion, uh, perhaps to our first communion in this church, or if we came from another tradition, it can perhaps remind us of our first communion in the Episcopal Church. It can bring back memories of other places, of other altars, of other fellow believers, of people we used to sit with. But what makes us particular in our Anglican understanding is that, yes, it is a memorial, but it is much more than a memorial. In the back of the Book of Common Prayer, there's a wonderful little section simply entitled The Catechism. It may be that some in this room, when they were being confirmed, studied and memorized the Catechism. It's still a good thing to do. Perhaps we'll take on sections of it this Lent. Who knows? But it's a fantastic resource, a place to to refer to when one is wondering, what does our church say about baptism? What does our church say about confirmation, about marriage? What does our church say about Holy Communion, the Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper? There in the back of the prayer book, at the end of the section on Holy Communion, it asks a question, what are the benefits of the Lord's Supper? And the answer is really wonderful, I think. The answer is the benefits we receive are three things. The forgiveness of our sins, the strengthening of our union with Christ and one another, and a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, which is our nourishment in eternal life. It's all three of those things, all at once. The forgiveness of sins has to do with the past in some ways. Um, The church gets it wrong, I believe, our church and others, when we focus too much on having sins forgiven before we come to the table. Because as we've all probably experienced, it's partly in receiving the body and blood of Christ that we are forgiven, that we feel forgiven, that we show the barest chance of knowing we are forgiven to our core If you think about how that works with a little child, a a child who perhaps does something really bad and lies or hits a sibling or a neighbor's child and so is sent to her room, she needs to apologize and come clean before joining the family at the table. But joining the family at the table is an essential part of the forgiveness. It's the ritualized part. It's the sacramental part. It's when she knows It's been forgiven. It's been forgotten. We sometimes, as the church, take those scriptures of St. Paul a little too seriously. We underscore them and enshrine them. Uh, To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. So examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In fact, the Church of England for generations used those words and others added to it as what was called the fencing of the gate. And it was a warning. You better be careful. Don't come to this altar unless you've done A, B, and C, D. 
Paul was speaking to a very specific community. It may be that there are those times when we have no business sitting in church and really should leave and go and be reconciled with someone else. There can be those times when each of us might best stay away from the altar and make an amends to someone or something. But usually, for most of us, It's a gradual process, and the forgiveness happens in offering ourselves even as God is offering God's self. When we partake of the body and blood of Christ, we are forgiven. We're forgiven again. Our sins are washed away at baptism, surely, but the ongoing accumulation of sin in our life meets its match in Holy Communion. St. Ignatius of Antioch has a wonderful phrase when he refers to the Lord's Supper. He calls it the medicine of immortality. He says it's the medicine for immortality, the antidote to prevent us from dying so that we should live forever in Jesus Christ. He notes in a commentary, of course, sometimes medicine is hard to take. It tastes bitter. It hurts before it helps especially if our tastes have become accustomed to other things. But the Holy Eucharist can teach our tongue. It can train us to taste what is good for us. Like good medicine, it increases our resistance level. And like vitamins, it strengthens us for service. Through the forgiveness of sins, the Eucharist recalls the past but wipes the slate clean. The Eucharist is in that way the sort of ultimate palate cleanser. The second benefit, according to the Catechism, sets us down not so much in the past but in the present. It has to do with strengthening our union with Christ and with one another. In a world and a culture that so often suggests we live only for ourselves, that we protect what's ours at all cost, that we only think of ourselves, then the unifying work of the Blessed Sacrament is really countercultural, but it's life-giving. It's in communion that we are reminded we have one another, we are given one another. The common cup and the common bread underscore this, that we're not really so different from each other after all. All barriers can be wiped away at the altar. Barriers of race and class and education and differences of national origin or sexual orientation or marital status or income. They're all dissolved in the common chalice. I sometimes will visit a church and when I look in the church and everybody kind of looks the same, I get a little uncomfortable. Not because they're necessarily doing something wrong, but because I think they're missing a part of the image of God. God loves to surprise us and startle us with people who are different from us, with people who challenge us, with people who perhaps make us a little uncomfortable so that we can see the body of Christ more deeply and more clearly in new ways every day. The Eucharist cleans up the past. The Eucharist awakens us to the present. And then even more mystically, sharing in the body and blood of Christ, our eyes are open to the future. Our future and a future with God. As we heard in those beautiful words from the Revelation to John, what we do here and in a few minutes is a foretaste of what is to come. If we think the food in this world can be good, it's just going to get better in the next. 
mindful of the present, grateful for the reality of here and now, we're made aware in the Eucharist that we are also living toward this great gigantic feast that has no ending. We live into that image of revelation into the salvation and the power and the glory of God, we then hear the voices of the faithful from all time and all places as they blend together. That's with everyone we've ever known, everyone who has died, even more. We're all together in that heavenly banquet. I love to imagine that the altar is not just this altar table, but one that extends through the building. And certainly in this place, it goes into St. Christopher's house. It's, it's alive and, and full and bursting at the seams on Tuesdays for our senior dinner. It's, it's alive and well on, Sunday, on Saturday afternoons for our community dinner. Um, with leftovers, it's alive in many nights of the week through the shelter. As we go from this place and go to restaurants and homes and everywhere, we take the body of Christ with us and in us. We break it together in a world that is already broken, but looking eagerly for healing and hope. And so grateful for the redemption of the past and thankful for the mystery of the moment and glad for the hope that is ours, we can celebrate this feast of the body and blood of Christ. In the 20th century, one of the leading voices on Anglican worship was an English Benedictine monk named Gregory Dix. He wrote an enormous book on the Holy Eucharist, and it shaped much of what the church does and says and sings even to this day. Dix points out that of all the many things Jesus told his disciples, most people have ignored them. If you think about the Gospels, every time Jesus says do something, usually the disciples either forget he said it or do exactly the opposite. Except for the Holy Eucharist. As Dix writes, when Jesus commands his disciples, do this in remembrance of me, keep on doing this, he commands. And Dix then wonders and asks, was ever another command so obeyed? He goes on to reflect for century after century, spreading slowly to every continent and country among every race on earth. This action has been done in every conceivable human circumstance for every conceivable human need from infancy and before it until extreme old age and after it. From the pinnacles of earthly greatness to the refuge and fugitives in caves and dens of the earth. And then Dom Gregory wonders, why? Why have faithful disciples in every age and every place continued to remember this one thing? He suggests perhaps it's because it's something we can do. He writes, people have found no better thing than this to do. For kings at their crowning, for criminals going to the scaffold, for armies in triumph, for a bride and bridegroom in a little country church for the proclamation of a dogma or for a good crop of wheat, for the sick old woman afraid to die or for the student sitting for an examination. On and on the list might go and we might add our own places and times. Uh, 
when do we come to this table? Well, when we don't know what else to do, when we can't do anything else, when we can't control the economy, when we can't stop storms, when we can't heal the ones we love, when we can't on and on and on. All the things we're powerless over. Nonetheless, with the Holy Spirit, we perhaps can. We can have our anger, our frustration, our hopes, our deepest desires all turned into prayer. We can enact this prayer, embody this prayer, and turn it into thanksgiving, into Eucharist, the Greek word for thanksgiving, just as Jesus modeled with his friends. In the mystery of this meal, we are forgiven. We are brought together again into community. We are pointed once again into God's kingdom, God's kingdom here and far beyond. And so let us feast with him who says, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.